This is Jim O'Donnell, and I am with the Taos Land Trust. You're listening to the Taos Land Trust Radio Hour, where we talk to people involved in conservation of both land, water, and culture across northern New Mexico. Today, we're going to be talking with Jen Zawacki, I think, if I got the last name right. Mm-hmm. Jen is a restoration ecologist with Keystone Restoration Ecology out of Santa Fe. She and I'll, I'll let uh, I've got her on the phone here and I'll let her explain in detail about the business. But her and her husband, Steve Vrooman, are both restoration ecologists and run this business. And the Taos Land Trust has contracted with them to do the restoration work along the Rio Fernando in the Rio Fernando Park uh, that we're creating near Fred Baca Park in the center of Taos. So good morning, Jen. Good morning, Jim. How are you? Doing well. Thank you for taking the time to be on here. Yeah, and, great to be here. Yeah, so so I'm just going to give a little background again. You know, we, we do this radio show every other week, and we talk a lot about Rio Fernando Park, uh, but just in case there's new listeners out there, there's somebody who hasn't seen what we're doing in, say, the the Taos News or on our website, which is www.taoslandtrust.org, I want to just give a little background. So in 2015, Taos Land Trust purchased a 20-acre parcel in the center of Taos that was the old Romo farm, and it's right along the Rio Fernando next to Fred Baca Park. After the purchase, the land trust dove into a year-long community-driven planning process that we are are basically at the end of that. So we did a wide range of uh, events and information gathering, both online and door-to-door, and having people out at the land trust, community folks, to find out what the community needs as far as a, a new public park. And then we've worked with experts such as as Jen and Steve at Keystone Restoration Ecology and Amy Bell, who we had on here a couple weeks ago at Groundwork Studios, as the experts to help us implement what um, came out of the planning process a bit of what the, um, the community would like to see in this area. So that's just general background. want to keep getting that information out there. And so... The Rio Fernando, I think most people who, actually, I think most people in Taos don't even know that we have the Rio Fernando runs through town, but um, mm-hmm. um, those who do know that it's, it's, it's in trouble. And so that's why we are looking at a restoration project along the river. So Jen, why don't you just tell us real quickly a little bit about your company? Sure, sure. Uh, so Keystone Restoration Ecology, like you said, is based in Santa Fe, and it was started by um, my partner, Steve Roman, um, close to 20 years ago, actually. Uh, He grew up in New Mexico, and he's an ecologist that specializes in vegetation. Our company basically, you know, we like to say that we work with water to regenerate and revitalize landscapes. So we do everything from watershed restoration design to constructing those, structures and projects to training the public and professionals and we also work a lot to advance kind of the scientific understanding in the field of restoration so we do a lot of different things um, everything from stream and wetland restoration to 
you know, road drainage and erosion control to post-fire restoration. Um, but it all kind of in is incorporated into that watershed restoration. And so we just like to say that we like to use water as a resource instead of, um, you know, kind of deflecting it out of that from it being a problem. Um, and here in dry lands of New Mexico, we see that all the time and know how important it is to use that resource wisely. So the company has been around for over 20 years now, and Steve has kind of taken it from infancy all the way um, to where it is now. And he, in the beginning, was working a lot and very closely with a gentleman uh, named Bill Zedike, who was a retired Forest Service uh, wildlife biologist turned kind of a stream restorationist. His big love was waterfowl, and he realized that, you know, those bird species really needed healthy riparian areas, not only for food and habitat, but for migration purposes. And so he kind of developed a set of techniques called induced meandering, which is working with gullies and incised wetlands to kind of speed up the natural process that a stream would normally do to repair itself. And so he would use volunteers and hand labor and build out of natural materials, such as wooden posts or use rocks, to basically create natural stream features, such as things we all know like riffles and pools and creating floodplain areas. And this would actually get the river to meander more, kind of take that windy path versus a straight shot. And what they began seeing was is that they could speed up kind of the recovery of these degraded dry wetlands or, you know, stream beds. They would see longer flows of water, things going from ephemeral channels to intermittent to perennial. Um, they would see the vegetation come back, uh, the wetlands and riparian kind of species, and therefore then uh, wildlife could come back because, you know, the ecosystem could support those species. So it really became, you know, this beautiful kind of positive feedback loop cycle. And, um, you know, Steve was hooked and he's been doing it all over, you know, New Mexico and the Southwest. And even we've, you know, been doing trainings in other countries. So it's awesome. really kind of taken off. Right. And what what role do you play in, in that? Because you so have a, perma I, a background in right. permaculture. Yes, I do. I also have a background in science and biology and conservation. And around that time, uh, I also was introduced to permaculture. And But I, as I was working in academia, I realized there was this big connect, disconnect between the science scientists were doing and the general public's knowledge. And so I actually, along the way, became very involved and in, immersed kind of in environmental education for many years and really loved it. I, that was definitely a passion of mine until I kind of felt like I needed to get my hands dirty again. And I went and I uh, lived abroad for a while and worked at a community teaching sustainable skills, which was kind of, you know, I like to think that permaculture is kind of a whole toolbox of sustainable skills. And I returned to the Southwest after a couple of years of being away. Where and were you? Worked. I, uh, I was living in Thailand, uh -huh. south, uh, northern Thailand. And I came back to Santa Fe and worked with 
both um, a small business that does permaculture design and implements kind of smaller scale projects on landowners, um, you know, so backyards, a lot of water catchment, erosion control, thinking about, you know, perennial edible plants that people can plant um, for themselves and for forage, uh, for other species, and doing a lot of stormwater infiltration, and also was teaching with Scott Pittman at the right. Permaculture Institute here in northern New Mexico. And that was around the time that I met Steve, and it was just a real natural fit for me to kind of come on board uh, with Keystone Restoration because I could kind of, I could take my interest in education and training and also still be doing similar work to Steve, um, but mostly, you know, on a, on a more residential level. So, you know, a lot of the work Keystone does, we actually get to think a little bit broader picture of the watershed versus just working on um, individual properties like for the Taos Land Trust. Right. Uh, so we use, we use both those um, hats uh, to do that work. And so I, I work in a number of capacities, but I do a lot of project managing for Keystone. I still get to get dirty and until recently was, you know, did a lot of work in the machines and with shovels. Uh, my the little toddler stuff. has slowed me down a little bit, but <laughs> we're getting back into it. And so I, I really work kind of in that interface of, of bringing uh, where we can uh, kind of those permaculture principles and observations uh, into kind of the designing and planning for projects. Uh, especially when there's something like the Taos Land Trust, where it's it's definitely a project where it's in that urban wildland interface, and you're balancing all of all of those needs of an ecosystem yet humans, and how how does that all unfold in a way that's that can be more harmonious, I should say. So there's two terms that I'd just like to define here, or have you define. Uh, one sure. is what is a watershed. And the second one is, what is permaculture? Okay. So a watershed is an area that wherever a raindrop, let's say, falls, it all drains to the one spot, to a one stream. So, you know, looking up in Taos, you have a few watersheds there, but the Pueblo de Taos and the Rio Fernando, they both are separate watersheds, and then those watersheds drain to the Rio Grande watershed, which is a larger one. So you can start with a small watershed that then feeds into a larger watershed. We call those sub-watersheds. And it's very helpful in terms of thinking about water and thinking about land because everything flows downstream. So what's happening up in the mountains on the outskirts of Taos there, with you know, which we're becoming more aware of with wildfires and flooding, um, it's going to impact as it as it concentrates and comes lower down into the watershed where, you know, the town of Taos is situated. So it's the short answer is it's the land that, that uh, when water falls on, it all drains to one stream or one concentrated point. Okay. And then permaculture is, uh, you know, built on design principles that are rooted in observation and, mimicking ecological systems. So there's a lot of applications for that where we're looking at 
you know, how does nature, you know, kind of solve these problems and then implement those so that we're receiving the same benefits. A lot of times it's, people will say it's working with nature instead of against it, or the problem is the solution. A classic example is, you know, if you have snails eating all of your beloved greens in the garden, uh, permaculture might change your thoughts into, instead of having a snail problem, you, you have, uh, you have an area where you could use some ducks to eat those snails. Um, and so kind of looking at it, you know, what creating whole systems to really address, you know, all the kind of needs and produce, you know, agriculturally produce productive systems that, you know, take care of us with food, medicine, fodder and forage for animals and livestock. And so kind of thinking about, you know, the whole picture. Um, so going back to restoration, the very nature of your business, why do we need restoration? Why is it important? Well, I think, you know, on a, on the scale of, you know, Taos Land Trust, um, why it's important to do it there, as we, you know, spent more time on that site doing our assessment, it became very obvious from on the ground surveying, but also looking at historic aerial photos that, you know, the, the river channel running through that property had been moved. It had been straightened, which is a really common occurrence you see all throughout uh, New Mexico because um, folks wanted to be able to farm and either farm that area or have it as pasture lands for livestock. So, in general, we work in areas that have already been disturbed by humans in some way. So either through, you know, wildfire, extreme flooding, overgrazing, runoff from flooding, agriculture, channel modification, like I was just talking about. And really, when we do restoration, what we find is by restoring kind of the natural form that that this river and this stream has evolved to have with the size watershed it currently has, uh, it, it has more resilience to deal with disturbances. Um, and we're seeing those more and more today with, you know, larger wildfires and more post-fire runoff um, and then even extreme flooding events like that we saw just this summer, for instance. When we have areas and streams and healthy floodplains, you know, they can function and buffer the effects of those events. So there's also, there's that creating more resilience in our natural environment to, you know, protect us. But then there's also, you know, just many benefits of having healthy floodplains, which I'm sure people are aware of because we are taught, we talk about them a lot here in New Mexico being, you know, a desert dry land environment. They recharge shallow groundwater tables. They sustain kind of diverse vegetation that's important for habitats for a lot of migrating birds and also, you know, vertebrates, but there's something, there's, there's a statistic out there uh, for New Mexico, you know, over the last two centuries, we've, it's estimated that, you know, in New Mexico, we've lost 50% of our wetland areas, and that even though it's only 1% to 2% of the landscape, wetland and riparian zones across the, you know, North America, you know, three quarters of all the vertebrate species in New Mexico depend on kind of that riparian habit for some part of their life. So 
there's the benefits to humans, obviously, with drinking water and, you know, economy things like fishing, uh, recreation. But then there's also kind of this whole other, you know, being part of the natural system and creating spaces that are that are very vital and important to the survival of, you know, species we share the planet with. Um, and I think, you know, those are all usually at the forefront of um, the of, of conversations in New Mexico, just because, like I said, water is such a, it's, it's rare and it's, you know, it's, it has a big impact. It does. So it's a problem or we're using it, you know, efficiently. Um, I'm a big fan of old maps. And um, mm-hmm. when I was in my, my 20s, I was an archaeologist and I had all these old maps. And one of the things that I, I, and I, I found fascinating then and I still find fascinating now is on, on a lot of the old maps, you could see springs marked. And mm-hmm. I would go out to, and, and large numbers of springs, New Mexico used to be covered with them where the water seeped out of the ground and you would go to them or I would go to them, you know, present day. And you could tell that there had been a spring there at one time in some cases, in some cases not. But the fact of the matter was, is that 90, 95% of them were dried up and had been for a long time. And what, what sticks in my mind about that is how we view New Mexico. Now we think of it as a, as a naturally semi-arid landscape, whereas historically it was much more wet. And yes, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say we hear that same that story that you just told about you know springs on the map. We hear that a lot when we work with Navajo Nation of how there used to be you know there used to be perennial flowing springs that now are completely dried up. And I, I think of that a lot too, Jim, just in the fact that so many sheep and cattle were grazed here. You know, when you look out at the landscape now, you are, you, you wonder what they would be eating, but it was much lusher at during, you know, during the time of those historic maps that you're talking about enough to think that sheep and cattle could be grazed, you know, huge herds of right. them um, grazed and, you know, successfully. So you're right. I mean, those kind of those historic uses, too, have have played a role in kind of changing an ecosystem. And I think that's the talking about, you know, kind of that negative feedback loop versus a positive feedback loop. You know, the restoration we like to do is, you know, pointing the stream back into the form that it naturally wants to be in so it can heal itself and thereby change the surrounding area. And, you know, in some cases, the ecosystem completely goes from dry land shrubs of chamisa and rabbit brush or, you know, four-winged salt brush back to, you know, uh, rushes and right. uh, kind of things that you would expect to only see in wetland areas because they're tapping in, you know, the roots are very far down deep and tapping into, you know, shallow groundwater that's that's trickling underneath the surface there that you can't see throughout the air. Right. Yeah, it, it, I, I was just, while you were talking, I was thinking about uh, uh, out near Portales, there's uh, an area, a, a, a dry stream bread called Rio de las Truchas, trout stream, you know, trout river. River of trout, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's it's dry year round, 
except probably in heavy <laughs> rainfalls when it washes. And I just think, you know, at one time, not too long ago, it held, it held fish. It was big enough to, to have trout. So, so the landscape has changed dramatically. It, at Rio Fernando Park, along the, the Rio Fernando, the farmers who were there changed the stream channel, straightened the stream channel to get more land to graze, to probably to graze or, or, or even to grow things down in the, what had been the wetland once they drained it. So, Jen, when you, how, how do you guys do your assessment? When you came out to Rio Fernando Park, how do you do an assessment of, a, of an area that you're going to restore? Sure, yeah, it's a multi-stepped uh, process. And it's, you know, it varies from project to project, but there are some things that are always, that we always do, which one is, is to do a lot of surveying, so elevational surveying. So that's how you, you might have seen us out there, you know, we have a laser level and measuring tapes and we're doing what is called uh, longitudinal profiles and cross sections, which is basically looking at the river channel and also the whole kind of floodplain area and we're we gather a lot of that information that data that's elevation to try to figure out kind of the stream classification it helps us it helps us figure out you know just things about the stream like the meander length the width of the stream how the you know how kind of the average um floodplain area that it has access to and it's all kind of feeds into a system of what's called a natural channel design and a, a discipline that's called fluvial geomorphology, which was Ooh, a, That's a big, big set of words. Yeah, it is. But basically all it means is how water shapes the, the ground, the earth. Uh, and it was, a, it was a science that was developed by Luna Leopold, which was, you know, related to Aldo Leopold. And Luna spent his life basically looking at streams, the geomorphology, and how water was shaping the earth. And we started to see patterns. And so we're looking, when we're out there surveying, kind of which pattern do we see? And it's all based in math. Big surprise there. So we kind of take that data back to the office and look at these stream parameters. And that lets us know you know, what, what are we finding on the ground? We also, at that same time, are looking for what we call a reference reach, which is a, a length of the stream, preferably in the, the same watershed, that's, that's kind of functioning in a, in a healthy way, that we, where we go look at it and we don't see active signs of degradation, erosion, you know, the stream banks aren't cut. And, and is there a... The, is there a section of the Rio Fernando that meets that criteria? There, we we have we looked above and below, and we we've got some that are that are close. So yeah, there are there are. Okay, a few. all right. I was just asking yeah. because it's 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 a very challenged watershed. Yes, yes, and it's not. Um, it is challenged. There's just a lot of development in there, but there are there are places where um, the river you know, at first look, it uh, seems to be kind of doing what it wants to naturally do. And so that that's part of it is kind of those elevational surveys that helps us figure out what form this stream wants to take and, you know, what it, what it naturally needs to kind of basically perform its function, which is to move both water and sediment downstream. Um, so 
if and, it, and if it can't do those things in a balance, that's when you start to see uh, signs of bank erosion and undercutting of the banks and you know downcutting, which creates the gullies that we all are familiar with. Um, so, so when we're, you you talked a little bit about the straightening of the stream along the uh, and let me just be clear, uh, there's. Out of the 20 acres in Rio Fernando Park, about seven acres uh, is wetland and riparian. Riparian means close to the to the river. So wetlands, riparian area, uh, and an actual section of the creek is about seven acres out of the 20. And and the actual creek is about 1,300 feet long if you if you if you straightened it out. So linear feet, right? Right. So it's a relatively small portion of the of the Rio Fernando. So so like I said, you when you 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 mentioned the straightening of the stream, but what else did you find when you did that assessment of that thirteen hundred feet and those seven acres? What what else did you see that was struggling? Well, we a few things. Uh, you know, it's there's a lot of invasive species that are currently there that you wouldn't expect to find. Uh, the Russian olive is one of those. Those are notorious for out-competing uh, other species. They're very fast-growing, and they tend to really come in and change a riparian area. So they tend to grow right along the stream banks of the river, and when they do that, they when, uh, it, it limits how much a stream can fl- expand during a flood. And that causes the sediment to act differently, and you end up getting where the stream starts to downcut instead of spread out. So the Russian olives have really changed kind of the ecosystem down there in terms of what you'd expect to find. Um, usually in riparian areas, we see a lot more willows, and during floods, willows are more flexible. They're able to just be bent down, and so the water can still spread out across an area and get up on that floodplain, those benches that we call floodplain area, and that allows, uh, during those flooding events, that allows vegetation that's in the area to, you know, kind of sustain itself. When you get the invasive Russian olives growing and those floodwaters can't spread out because the Russian olives are so rigid, you start to see the kind of those those upland floodplain areas or those riparian areas that you were just talking about kind of become drier. And so other plant species move in that are more suitable to those dry conditions. So you've really kind of limited the habitat. So that was one thing that was we really were seeing happen. Um, there are wetland species, as you mentioned, down in kind of that riparian seven-acre zone but they're not as many as you would expect to see. And there's definitely species that are missing um, that would kind of complete, you know, make it all wetland. So we actually, that was one of the things we did was we did a wetland delineation, which is where you walk around and you look at the percentage of plants that are wetland species that can only grow in a wetland and, um, will not grow if it's too dry, and you look at the soils. And so not that not that whole seven acres is a wetland, and that's one of the goals of the project is to increase the wetland area because it could be, and it, and it was at one point. When we look at the historic photos, when we talk to community members and Taos, 
there's definitely a memory of it being wetter down there. And you can see that in, you know, the mid 1900s, that was when the pictures really show a straighter channel going through there rather than that kind of windy meandering bend that we keep, keep referring to. So those were some of the things we saw. We also just saw a lot of disturbance um, from humans, both, you know, just trash from either floods or people visiting the property since, you know, probably was getting a lot of folks coming over from Fred Baca Park, old fence lines and posts and things in there, barbed wire. Um, so lots of impacts from both, from, you know, past human settlements that you, you might not, you might not see at first glance. Uh, it was really when you were starting to bushwhack through some of the thicket that you came across signs of those disturbances. Right. So those are, I think, does that answer some of your question, Jim, about yeah, definitely. And, you know, one of the uh, oral histories that we collected was from Marcella Garcia, who was uh, Romo. She was part of the Romo family that lived there. And she was telling us that when she was a kid, so this was probably late 40s, early 50s, um, her dad had this old pickup and they would, the kids would pile in the front of the pickup and dad would drive down into that wetland and they would basically mud bog. And... Um, that was that was one of her great memories. She she said her her dad just was so happy and just loved that, and so that's also one of those impacts that that happened historically. Yes, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I don't think, especially um, now with how dry it was this summer down there. I mean, I think it wouldn't you wouldn't have been able to have as much fun with the mud. Yeah, that's right. There wasn't any mud down there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so what are our goals then? Uh, what do we what do we want to achieve, and how long is it going to take? Sure, that's something we like to start with as goals. Uh, so there's the simp- the kind of the simple answer to that is we want to create more wetlands, and that will raise the water table and promote you know more wetland species growing there, and also then kind of bring back that meandering channel that we've been talking about. So that snaky, snaky kind of path of a river rather than a straight, a straight shot. Um, and so that's what we'll, that's what we're focusing on is, you know, taking out the Russian olives so that we can get in there to do the work. Um, so it's going to open up that area quite a bit and uh, that'll allow machines to come in and we work with usually a mini excavator and a tracked skid loader. So all of the machines we work with have tracks, which are much better than working with wheels just because it disperses the, the compaction and the impact to the site. And we also are going to be doing it during the winter time, which uh, should limit the amount of disturbance and compaction just because it's frozen. Um, it is in the spring, pretty still parts of the area are pretty mushy and muddy. And, you know, that was one of the concerns that if we did it, did the restoration work when it was in the springtime or the summer, that the machines might get stuck a lot. So uh, after much consideration, we decided frozen might be the best way to approach that wetland area. And that'll really kind of limit the amount of, you know, long-term disturbance to the area. But 
those machines are going to come in and they're going to redig the historic channel. So using all of that information we collected during those surveys, we then build a stream channel that's the correct form for the size of the water moving through Taos Land Trust property or the Rio Fernando Park. And it'll reconnect to the existing, to the old. We've actually found evidence of the old winding channel. So we'll reconnect to that. And so that'll be some digging and moving some wetland sod around. And we'll be using those pieces of wetland sod, which basically is, when I say wetland sod, it's think of it as a chunk of uh, dirt that has wetland plants growing on it. We literally scoop down and get those roots and pick it up in one big chunk. And then we can transplant that to another area. So when we bring back this more meandering curve to the channel, we'll then use those sod chunks to create berms in the old channel where the, where the stream is currently flowing to create shallow, shallow wetland pools or ponds. And those, so those sod chunks will create berms and then we'll have little ponds and that'll increase kind of the wetland area down there. It'll create, some still water, which is really important for birds and, you know, a lot of aquatic life. And then we'll be moving the wetland sod around so that we'll be in kind of giving that vegetation kind of the ideal conditions so that it can spread and uh, hopefully kind of bring back more of a wetland uh, habitat. So, that's what you'll expect to see is the trees, the Russian olives kind of open up. Um, it'll be a more open canopy. The wetland species will be there, and then we'll be transplanting a lot of willows, which are good. Um, we mentioned the benefits for flooding. They slow down those floodwaters and deposit all that nutrient-rich sediment that's moving through the land rather than just having it scour downstream. So, Jen... One of the questions that I have, well, I have a bunch of questions. First of all, when is this going to start? So I believe the tree removal um, or part of the tree removal of getting, removing some of those Russian olives so that we can get in there and have access to the site might be starting this fall. But then the, the larger machines won't be there until probably January or February, depending on, you know, weather. Okay. All right. And and again, what you like you were saying earlier, we want to do this work in the winter to have minimal impact on the the soils and the the wetland itself. Yes. Yeah. We use are the heavy machinery used as track loaders and excavators, so that really disperses the impact. And then having it be frozen, we won't be sinking. You know, if you think of a machine sinking into. We've all had that with our boots right. um, getting stuck in the mud. So we're going to avoid that happening with the machines because okay. it'll limit the disturbance down there. And you talked about removing the Russian olives. So let's dive into that because <laughs> some of those Russian olives are big. And mm -hmm. um, how many are there and how do you get them out? Well, that's, um, I think, a process that the Taos Lantern has been looking at a lot. I know Ben Wright from Sound Tree has kind of been integral in, you know, reviewing kind of the different options and talking to other places in northern New Mexico, um, such as um, 
down in Santa Fe that have had wetlands that they've been, you know, have the same issues, you know, Russian olives that are large and what, what are the different methods to, to get those out. And then, so there's a few different ways, but really with trees that big, um, you know, you either need to chainsaw them down and cut them up into small pieces so you can move them or you need machines to help you move them. So it's just, it comes down to budget and funding sources and also, um, you know, the skills that you have on your team to, to kind of begin that process. I don't know if I know what House Land Trust has decided, but I do know that we're going to just be removing a portion of the trees for this kind of first phase, and then they're looking at different options for the rest of the Russian olives. I don't, that's a good question of how many there are. It's probably over, Ben could probably answer that in a second. It's probably close to 200, I would think, um, between, you know, the big ones and then little kind of sapling trees that are growing up. Um, and it'll be a process because, as we all know, uh, trees like to re-sprout. Even if you get the root ball, um, you know, they'll, they'll reform and re-sprout. And Russian olives are, are very good at that. We know, we know that from past uh, restoration, um, you know, projects. So there's a number of ways uh, to do it. And I know from our conversations with House Land Trust, you know, some of the things they're looking at is what can we do with this resource of wood? Um, so I know Ben has already created um, some hugel cultures, which is the chipped wood chips that you can use to kind of create uh, uh, water harvesting, you know, depending on if you're capturing kind of surface runoff. And you kind of mound them up in low berms, and then you plant in them. And as, the, as they break down, um, it's usually very nutrient-rich, uh, the soil in there. Um, and so that they've looked in, Tell Slantris has looked into that method. I know there's been a lot of conversations about what kind of furniture makers or artists in town could use um, some of this wood. We have a friend who's a woodworker, and on a past restoration project, he actually took uh, these old Russian, you know, large trees uh, and milled the wood and built his kitchen cabinets out of it. And I have to say, it's the most stunning wood grain you've ever seen. That's awesome. So, yeah. It, <laughs> Talk about I, the problem a, is the solution, right? Yeah. So I think there's, you know, the land trust is really delving into, you know, as this, as the Russian olives come out, what, how can they go on and have other, you know, benefits and uses uh, on the land as they're working on other parts of, you know, the project with kind of, you know, agriculture and, and demonstration sites and education. It's been our understanding that it's generally accepted among restoration folks that when you remove Russian olives, you need to use herbicides to then keep them from coming back. But the the land trust, and particularly Ben in particular, but all of us, we don't want to use herbicides. And um, so we are we're looking at different methods for this removal where we can avoid using any herbicides. So it so the process might last longer because there might be more work in that. Yes, yes. I think you know you when you talk when you start having this conversation with um, 
folks that have done past projects with Russian olive removal, the one thing everybody will tell you is, you know, herbicide or no herbicide, you're going to get a lot of re-sprouts and probably more so without the use of, you know, painting herbicide on the stump. So that is one thing to prepare uh, for is the fact that, you know, in that case, you're going to need more manual labor, either, you know, crews or volunteers to come out and keep kind of trimming back those re-sprouted uh, Russian olives. They can grow amazingly fast. They so, can. You know, in one season, you can go from having a little, you know, seedling sapling to something that's, you know, now you can't cut with your pruners. You know, you need a little handsaw to get. So it will be something that is kind of a continual uh, process in terms of keeping up on it, because um, otherwise they do a remarkable job of coming back. And like other, like some plants, you know, when you change the conditions, uh, like go, going from drier to wetter, it sometimes limits to how well they're able to survive. Uh, with Russian olives, they really do just, they do just fine if it's wet or, you know, or if it's drier and they, because they're able to grow so fast. So, but we've really seen that it's something that needs to be tackled uh, for our Bosque areas uh, because they're so fast growing. You know, I mentioned how they change kind of the way a stream is able to expand and deal with flooding, but we've also, We've also seen that they have about half the bird diversity of a natural bosque area, that when we do remove the Russian olive studies, a few studies have shown that the water table can bounce back and raise feet, not just, you know, a couple inches, but that without those roots kind of what we call evapotranspirating, which is moving water up, you know, and out through their leaves to photosynthesize, uh, without that pressure, the water is able to just kind of, the water table is able to increase. And so then you're able to support uh, other species that are better at kind of dealing with the flooding events and um, also create a more diverse and rich habitat. So um, although it is, a, you know, it's a labor-intensive process and something that doesn't happen overnight with Russian olive removal, I think we've seen... Um, across the state and across the Southwest, just how truly, how big and great the benefits can be with removing, you know, just this one species. So you're saying, if I understood you right, you're saying that the Russian olives suck up and then evaporate through their leaves so much water that when you remove them, the water table rebounds. You actually, you're almost actually creating water. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we didn't create it, but um, but yes, the water is able to stay in the water table in a shallow shallow ground water, we would call it, which means <clears throat> it's not evaporating, you know, on the surface. It's just available there to basically support vegetation growth through the roots being able to access it. And what it's also really doing, and this is huge for streams that are impaired, is it's able to, as you know, as the stream. And this is where we see streams change from, you know, ephemeral to intermittent, is that this creates more storage capacity that is subsurface. So as, as the water kind of trickles underground, it feeds back into the stream. And when it has time to do that, it, its temperature is colder, which we know is better for fish and dissolved oxygen capacity of our streams. It also, as it's trickling through, 
a lot of contaminants are settled out, settled out um, and treated through either roots or fungi or soil bacteria, which is a huge consideration on the Rio Fernando because there is E. coli contamination. And so this recharge that's happening underground is, is one of those benefits of a healthy floodplain that I was talking about earlier. This is really where we get so many of the benefits and of, you know, stream restoration, but also they're crucial for our drinking water and our fisheries and, you know, habitats. So more water, cleaner water, better habitat, more water, cleaner water. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Jen, we only Um, have, I'm sorry, we only have a couple minutes left, but one of the questions that I've heard from folks around is when you Mm -hmm. walk down along the Rio Fernando, um, you can see that, that beavers that are, that have set up shop in Fred Baca Park, which is really cool mm-hmm. to have beavers right in one of our public parks. Um, they're moving up into the Rio Fernando Park, and they have taken taken down several Russian olives them, themselves. And so my question is, is why don't we just let the beavers do the work? Why do we want to get well, in there with, uh, with more intensive activity? Sure, sure. So... Uh, it's great to see the beavers, like you were saying. Um, they right now, although they're coming in, they don't right now. There's not enough food for them to really kind of hunker down and uh, set up their homes. Beavers don't re- don't really eat Russian olives. They prefer willow, and they need quite a bit of willow. I was surprised to find it's like three pounds of bark per day, and that's just for them to survive. You can imagine how that's why I guess they get the the name Busy Beaver. But they also get that name because they come in and they drop trees like you mentioned. And basically they're, you know, trying to create the habitat that is ideal for them, which we mentioned is flooding and creating areas where willow will grow um, because willows do like that kind of mushy stream bank area. And... So there's not enough food in there right now for them to really go for it. And then the other issue is that, you know, beavers don't always take into account where your driveway is and how the neighbors feel and right. um, other, what should I say, other other things that are nice to consider when you're... Um, when you're building a dam when, and creating a, a When a you're lake. building a dam, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... Uh, you know, they need to be managed, and what we'll be doing is kind of setting up the conditions, but then they'll go ahead and probably continue to work upon and improve upon because, you know, they they really do do what they do very well. Um, and so we're just kind of getting the ball rolling is what I like to think of it as, is kind of setting up those conditions so that there is more food for them and that they do come and kind of continue to bring in and maintain the vegetation down there. So I think waiting for the beavers, you know, they, and Ben can attest to this, he went out there and guarded trees like cottonwoods because they'll take down the cottonwoods too. Right. We fenced Um, off a lot of the native vegetation that we wanted to keep through this process. Right, because all they all they want is more sunlight in there so that they can dam, and then the willows and the vegetation that they like that needs a more open canopy, more sunlight to grow, um, and so they're promoting those conditions. So you know that those cottonwoods that are a couple hundred years old, you know, those those can go as far as they're concerned too. So 
we're just, you know, kind of guiding the process and really kind of trying to start that feedback loop that the beavers will continue. And, you know, it's cool that the land trust was able to get cameras. And I think you guys are going to get a great kind of inside look at how the wildlife responds to this whole change down there. Right. We do have wildlife cameras out there and myself being a photographer and we have some other friends who are photographers and uh, we're definitely going to be able to document this. We're coming up on the 10 o'clock hour. This is Jim O'Donnell from the Taos Land Trust, and I've been talking to Jen Vrooman from Keystone Restoration Ecology about the restoration work that is uh, going to get underway this winter at Rio Fernando Park in Taos. Jen, my last question uh, before we go is how long do we think this is going to take? Well, the initial process of, uh, you know, building the structures down there and and kind of creating a meandering channel won't take that long, probably a month or two at at the most. The part that's going to be a little bit longer is the recovery and the revegetation of the site. So something I wanted to put out is that, um, you know, we we do training and and work with um, the public uh, to teach these methods. And something the Taos Land Trust has been interested in is working with any landowners in Taos that have riparian areas or plant, you know, wetland plants or species growing on their property uh, to transplant those to and introduce them to um, Rio Fernando Park. Like I said, there are wetland species present there, but there are a few species that we'd like to see. And so we found through our work in other wetland areas through New Mexico that if you can get vegetation that's local to that area, as opposed to bringing it in from a nursery in Idaho, it has a much better success rate at, at kind of growing. So we're going to see kind of the recovery period of the revegetation over the next year or two. And we're hoping that, you know, the community will want to get involved in doing, uh, you know, donating some plants that they have that would be suitable for the site and also moving those wetland species that are on the Taos Land Trust property, moving those to different locations so that they, you know, you kind of think of it as like a little, um, you know, a little, it's like a perennial. So you plant one, but then it spreads out and kind of takes up more area. So that will be a process that's kind of ongoing, as you mentioned, similar to kind of the Russian olive process. Those two pieces, that revegetation will take longer to respond but gotcha. you know, with a little with a little help, it'll we'll we'll push it in the right direction. And and some rain. So again, as we as everybody here is, is like <laughs> let's let's pray for rain and snow. Jen, thank you for taking the time to be on with us. Uh, this has been the Taos Land Trust radio show where we're talking about uh, land, water, culture issues, environmental issues here in northern New Mexico, and we've been talking with Jen Vrooman of Keystone restoration ecology. Jen, thanks again. Uh, We'll be keeping on this subject um, in several other shows coming up throughout the rest of the year and into next year. So have a good one. Yeah, Jim, thanks so much for having me on.